Well, we've been going through Hebrews, and uh, I think I'll be finished before the end of this next year. So pray for me. I appreciate those who have mentioned that it has been a blessing to them to go through the book of Hebrews, and it has been a tremendous blessing to myself. And uh, if you've never read the book of Hebrews or you've never studied it, I would really encourage you, particularly those of you who maybe haven't attended and listened to the chapters up to chapter uh, 7, to do some catch-up, and maybe this message on chapter 8 will be uh, relevant to you. So this is number 14. Thank you for uh, hanging in there with us. And we're in according to the pattern in Hebrews 8, 1 to 13. So let's read that. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest who is once seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. Since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law, they serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the temple, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Let's pray. Father, help us through this passage now to really understand what you are speaking to each of us personally, individually. We thank you for the new covenant. Help us now as we get our minds around this passage and what you're saying to us. 
individually as well as corporately. We thank you for your word, which is true as when it was originally given. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. According to the pattern, God was very specific with Moses. Way, way, way back. Thousands of years before Jesus Christ came. And in his faithfulness to Israel, bringing them out of Egypt and bringing them out as a nation. They had not been a nation. Israel was born in Egypt, not in the land of Israel. And God brought the people out of Egypt and blessed Israel, even to this day, and brought them to a land of promise and gave that land to them, which is their rightful land until the end. And even with some of the declarations being made these days, one of the things that we thank the Lord for is that Israel has made such a mark on the world. And the Bible asks us, commands us, pray for Jerusalem. And what do you know? It wasn't tweeted. It was a declaration that the embassy of the United States will be in Jerusalem. That is significant. The last seven presidents have said they will move the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem. And none of them have taken it to heart. It was a promise not fulfilled. What is going to happen with this declaration? that has been made. It seems God is turning a focus on Jerusalem. What significance does that have? I believe it has a huge significance on we as Christians gathered here. It's not just a quirk in history. God is working. And we need to believe that. And regardless of what your political background is, The word of God is true. And we stand on that, not on a president's declaration, but on what the word of God has said. And so God said to Moses, according to the pattern. And he's bringing that into focus, I believe, in our day and age. Now, I'm getting old, and some of you are still very, very young. I may see the Lord's coming, but surely you will. I believe we're very close. It's a time for us to really prepare our hearts and take the word of God seriously. And that this be what we draw our families around. The word of God can be trusted. It is sure. It is true. And we thank him for it. That was just part of my warm-up. In this chapter, he says, such a high priest. We'll talk about that. Then the copy and the shadow. And then talking about a better covenant. Let's dive in. Such a high priest. 
First of all, uh, in English, we have this word such. I'm not an English teacher, and I don't even pretend to be, but when we say, man, that was such a great meal, or he is such a smart guy, that is a predetermined adjective. It's a noun, but it is an adjective of what that thing is that we're describing. Do you understand that? I don't. But it's interesting. In in Japan, how many of you have taught English? I mean, just one person or a class or whatever. And we're asked, well, what does this mean? And, you know, we don't understand what this word is. And, in in fact, if you're struggling in, in English... My explanation is not going to help you a bit. But it is a word that is used as a noun, but it is an adjective. Just like I used it. It was such a good meal. He is such a smart guy. Such. You have any examples? Such a bad sermon. Such a bad explanation of the English language. Okay. It's a demonstrative. It's a, I said it was a noun. It's a pronoun. Yeah, okay. But it functions as an adjective, okay? Jesus is such a high priest. We're describing him. Such a high priest. In the expression, it's used to express how great he is. How unique he is. And we'll understand that uniqueness as we go along here. We talked about it last week, though, by the way. He has taken his seat at the right hand of the majesty on high. No one else has taken that seat. That seat sat forever unoccupied. Jesus, when he came then as a man and was resurrected from the dead and then ascended to the Father, he went and he took that place over 2,000 years ago, seated at the right hand of the Father, the majesty on high. Such a high priest that we have. Amazing, amazing He is also a minister in the true sanctuary, the true tabernacle. Was it last year or was it the year before when you started giving messages on the tabernacle and what it meant? This is talking about the true tabernacle. The tabernacle that we were talking about, that tabernacle was made out of skins and posts and brass fittings and held together and picked up and taken apart and moved on. It was very mobile. It was up and down, up and down, setting up, taking down, putting up again. It was temporary. And in fact, we cannot even find it on earth anymore. They don't know where it is. They don't know what happened to it, that tabernacle. It's gone. An amazing thing 
When Jesus Christ died, what was the greatest thing that happened when he died? Yes, our sins were forgiven. The price was paid. But one of the greatest things that happened, happened in the temple. When he said, it is finished. The work of redemption is finished. From the top to the bottom, the curtain was torn in two. That was the beginning of the end. And shortly after that, after the Bible was completed, by the way, I believe, there were no writings after 70 A.D. What happened in 70 A.D.? The temple was destroyed. Right now we've got Makiko, who is our good sister here that helps us a lot. She and a couple with several other friends are in Israel right now. And I've given her an assignment, and she's going to come back and, and teach me more about what she learned, because I'd love to go to Israel someday myself. How many of you would like to go? Okay, let's get a tour together, and we'll go next year in Jerusalem, okay? Wouldn't that be fun? But Makiko has gone there and is looking and observing, but there's no temple there. Therefore, the Jewish people have not been sacrificing animals because they're only allowed to sacrifice animals in the temple. Now, was that an act of God or what? I think it was. I think it was a declaration of God saying, there is a true tabernacle now. And that one is in heaven. And that is a permanent tabernacle where we will worship together all the nations of the earth, all the tongues and languages. What a chorus we're going to sing around the throne. That's the reality. That's the true tabernacle. He is such a high priest, but one of the things, he has to offer something, according to what we just read. This high priest has to have something to offer. But what does he offer? He offers himself as the Lamb of God. No priest did that up until Jesus. And Jesus, the Lamb of God, the perfect Lamb of God, offered himself. Such a high priest. But the copy and shadow is the tabernacle that we're talking about that has passed away. The author of Hebrews is making a very strong statement showing that Jesus is not a copy or a shadow. He is the reality of what we are talking about as far as the pattern. He's the pattern that the old tabernacle that has been destroyed was pointing to. It was pointing to Jesus Christ and who he was in the redemptive process of bringing every man, woman, and child born on this earth to himself or to recognize him as the only Savior.
And therefore, Jesus is not a copy, nor a shadow, but the reality of that. Moses was warned by God, see that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. And it's quite incredible if you go through the Old Testament and follow the construction and the instructions of how to build that tabernacle and how to put all of these things together. They were very, very precise. And that's why last year or the year before, when we studied the tabernacle, it was so important, those pieces, because they speak directly. Each one of those parts points to something about Jesus Christ. It's not just Moses writing down some things in in the desert and supposedly God giving it to him. No, it was given by God and with the instruction, build it according to the pattern. And that's the point that our author of Hebrews is making here. The third point, we have been given a tremendous opportunity in the better covenant or the second covenant or he also describes it in this chapter as a new covenant. The first covenant was based on the premise of each man, woman, and child being able to keep the law perfectly. And so that's why in Romans, Paul says, for what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. So all of that, all of the trappings, all the ritual that you read in the Old Testament was just a picture or a shadow of what the reality was. And so there had to be another covenant, a better covenant, a new covenant, in order for us all to be included in the salvation through Jesus Christ. You know, when I was... uh, a kid, and I came to trust in Jesus when I was 11 years old. But when I was about in junior high or maybe even high school, I thought to myself, if only I had lived in the time of Moses or of Jesus or even the apostles, the early church, I would be a better Christian. How many have had that sneaky thought? That if you'd met Jesus... Yes, I could believe in him. No. No. You probably wouldn't have, because I wouldn't have. You know, God has a perfect plan. You know that there are more people living on this great ball than have ever lived in ages past combined. Do you realize that? Have you heard that statistic? There are more people living now on planet Earth than all of the people in the past, all living on this ball. We are not at the maximum, I don't believe, of who could live on Earth, still survive, but it's it's getting pretty full. But the amazing thing that we've talked about this 
several times is there has never been an opportunity to hear the word of God than right now here on planet Earth. Kevin talked about the unreached peoples of the Earth, of the world. People in past generations were more unreached than what we are today. We have the word of God, and we've mentioned this before. How many copies of the Bible do you have on your cell phone? I've got an ESV, I've got an NIV, I've got an NET, I've got the NASB, all on my cell phone. I can pick up my cell phone anytime as long as I pay for the bill and read that and know that this is the Word of God. We've never had opportunity like this before. This is the amazing age we're living in. It really is. And we don't need, we shouldn't take it lightly. We have the greatest opportunity to know about Jesus Christ than the Apostle Paul. What? No. True. True. So we're without excuse. But on the other hand, we can thank God that we have this opportunity. And that's why it is given to us as a task to tell our parents, to tell our siblings, to tell our neighbors, to witness concerning Jesus Christ. And we have the greatest opportunity to do that. And even in spite of what Kevin mentioned about Japan as being the second largest unreached population group, we have an opportunity here in this land to evangelize Japan. Do you believe it? Or do you just think, well, that's because he wants a bigger church. I No, this, this church is big enough. That's not the motive. The motive is that we want to win our friends and those we meet to know the Jesus that we know. And we are their opportunity. Bless you this year as you rub shoulders with your work colleagues, as fellow students, neighbors, just sitting down next to somebody on the train for an hour and just give them a nudge and say, hey, I want to talk to you about something. And just start a conversation. One of the things that Katie and I enjoy very much here in Japan, being back here this time, is being able to travel around Tokyo. And I don't think there's a trip that goes by that we don't meet and talk with somebody. Don't know them from Adam or Eve. But we just look at them and they smile, we smile. Hey, where are you from? Well, I'm from Okinawa. And where are you from? Well, we're from the United States, and you know, and then we just start talking, and then we have an opportunity to talk to them. We've developed a relationship. Let me tell you something, a secret about evangelism. Don't dare do this. Stand on the street corner and pass out a tract to somebody along the street. Don't do that. Don't do that. Develop a relationship with them. 
first. Now, am I against passing out tracts? No. We pass them out every day. But develop a relationship. What does it mean? So you sit down and say, hey, you want a cup of coffee? Let's go to Starbucks. No, you don't even have to go to that to establish a relationship. It's to show them care by looking in their eyes, smiling, and presenting yourself as a representative of Jesus Christ. The easiest thing in the world to do, even with a stranger, even in Japan. You can do it. We do it all the time. And it's fun, isn't it? And we go away thinking, well, Lord, would you use this to work in their hearts? We don't know. We don't know what the result's going to be. That's up to you. You're the Father who is seeking. Just be friendly. Just care. And allow Jesus' love to flow through you to those around you. That's what it means to be a missionary. You don't even need a missionary visa to do that. And some of you are here on jobs. You're a missionary on your job. That's the way I see you. No, not I see you. But (laughs) that was a pun, by the way. But... I perceive you to be all missionaries. If you know Jesus Christ, you are a missionary. Just like Jesus. He was a missionary. What? No, he was a savior. No, he was a missionary. Come on a mission sent by his father. The greatest missionary venture of all time. He came and he befriended sinners, harlots, thieves, murderers, and extended to them the knowledge of his Father. In very, very few words. Okay, I'm way off topic here. But that's okay. Just reading again here. Verses 6 and 7. But now he, Jesus, has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises. For if the first had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second one. And here's seven points that he lists about this covenant. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. What does this mean? What does this actually mean in terms of the action of putting something in someone's minds and write them on their hearts when he's talking about his laws? Well, the first laws he didn't put into their minds or their hearts. First of all, he gave some stone tablets to Moses. That's as far as you can get from a mind or a heart is some kind of a piece of rock that God wrote on, the laws. But in Scripture, Ezekiel 36.30 says, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you, 
and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And so that when he says that he'll put his laws in their minds and in their hearts, he is looking ahead to our age post-crucifixion, post-Jesus' death and his resurrection. To us here living now, he's putting and has put his law into our minds, in our hearts, more so than in the old times. And I said, if I could only live back in the Bible times, no, the best chance is right now because he's put it into our minds and our hearts. And how? When we receive Jesus Christ as our Savior, we receive not just Jesus, but we receive the Spirit of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit. And he comes in and he reminds us, he speaks to us, he talks to us, he instructs us. And you don't have to be very old as a Christian, one day old, and you know, oh, that's a sin. How did you know it? Because your mom told you don't steal a cookie? No, because the Holy Spirit speaks to you in a quiet and soft voice. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. How do you know that you are God's people? By the Holy Spirit that's in you. By the fact that you have asked him in, and you believe his promise, and he's living in you. And your conscience and your understanding has been enlightened by the word of God and by the Holy Spirit. And that's how we walk as Christians. When we receive Jesus Christ, our hearts and minds, our whole body becomes the residence of Jesus Christ, of the Holy Spirit. He is living in us. And Jesus called the Holy Spirit the teacher. So when we hear the word of God as believers in Jesus Christ, our hearts and our minds are supernaturally inclined to listen, to hear what he has to say to us. Get this one. Verse 11. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. Now what does that verse mean? They shall not teach each one his neighbor. I mean, I'm talking to you right now, trying to teach you something. But you know what? My words are very frail and inaccurate and are not to be taken as gospel truth. But what you hear of the word of God, of what we're sharing, and the Holy Spirit is in you, empowering you to be able to understand what we're talking about. That's how it's written in our hearts. Do you get that? And so when I'm teaching you, you're not saying, oh, Ron, yes, I understand. No, you're probably saying, wow, I get it. I understand. Not because of my eloquence, but because of the work of the Holy Spirit. When you hear the word of God, and it strikes your heart. That's not 
that Bible or that verse that you saw somewhere, that's the Holy Spirit talking to you. So this verse makes a lot of sense then. They shall not teach. Why? Because we will have the Holy Spirit and we have the Holy Spirit in our time. Back in the Old Testament, yes, they had the Holy Spirit, but not in the same way in which we have it incarnate in us. So that when we read the Word of God, we don't need some preacher or teacher to explain it to us. We can ask and we can understand the meaning of it. So what's the use of seminary? Well, there are some things that we need to understand in seminary or in Bible college that help us along the way, but they're not tied to salvation or no salvation. Do you get it? That's what this verse is talking about, I believe. Number five, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. You know what is incredibly a blessing to me? There's a two-year-old here in this room. That two-year-old can understand about Jesus. And I'm sure you have shared Jesus. That's not too early to talk about Jesus. The Holy Spirit can make that truth known to her. Katie came to the Lord when she was three and remembers it to this day. It's not too early to teach your children about Jesus Christ. That's the promise. From the least of them to the greatest. The sixth point in verse 12 is, I will be merciful toward their iniquities. How many of us have known that mercy? And here's an astounding seventh point that he brings out. I will remember their sins no more. Can you choose to not remember something? The more you try to not remember something, the more you remember it. Everybody's shaking their heads. I've tried not to remember that. The best place to do that in not remembering, and a flash comes to you of remembering something that you know that God has already forgiven. Say, God, you're the only one that cannot remember. Take that. You've already forgiven it. I stand in your forgiveness. Isn't that a great thought? He doesn't remember So therefore, I can receive that it's not worth remembering because he's forgiven you and you are clean. Well, we're just about finished and I've got one more minute. Such a high priest, the copy and shadow, this is a better covenant. The conclusion, verse 13, when he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. And you know what? We've talked about this as being the word of God. And that about this much right here is the Old Testament and this is the New. This is one testament. This is one record together. 
We don't have two Bibles. We have one. This is speaking of the Old Covenant. This is speaking of the New Covenant. They are all one. But the Old Covenant is passed away. It's really obsolete, except for it teaches us and points to, and I've said that many, many times here, this part points to this part. You want to understand this part? Go back to this part. Does that make sense? Because this part is pre-Jesus dying for us. He became the perfect Lamb of God for us. But this is the Word of God that we can use for ourselves and we can use it for teaching others. Know the Lord. Well, I already know Him. How do you know? You know, we had the privilege this week of talking with a brother who's sitting in this room right now, and he shared with us his life testimony. We were incredibly blessed that God, when he was a little Buddhist boy, knew that there was something better than Buddhism. Knew that there was something there that he needed. And God, in his faithfulness, followed him and brought him to acknowledge and understand who Jesus Christ is. He remembers it when he was just a young boy. Many of you have the same testimony. God sought you out. And you look back now, and you know it was him. Now that you discovered it, ah, he knows me. He knew me from the beginning. Bless his holy name. Romans 10.4 says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Amen. Father, we are so grateful to you for your word. So grateful to bring Jesus Christ to our understanding. So faithful to follow us all these days picking us up when we fall down, forgiving us when we have offended, bringing to us the knowledge of the scripture, of knowing you. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. Thank you for this day and age. And Lord, would you use our lives to be a blessing to those we sit by in a train station or in a coffee shop or even in our homes, our parents, our siblings. You are the light of the world, and you called us light. We are lights. You called us the salt of the earth. Lord, increase our saltiness, the flavor of life being increased as we talk with our friends along the way. Thank you for 2017 for the opportunities that we've had and for the opportunities that are ahead of us in 2018. Lord, we look forward with expectation to what you're going to do in and through us. And we give you the honor and the praise and the glory in Jesus' name.
Amen.